you bring your Bible tonight? Isaiah chapter 12, that's where we're going to be studying. If you'd head over there, Isaiah chapter 12. Last Sunday night, Max did a textual study. Is my mic not on? Is it still not on? All right, hang on one second. I have a green light. Is that a bad sign? If I have to stand behind this mic, I will die. What's that? How about that? We're going to try to fix that. Isaiah chapter 12. Max worked a New Testament. What's that? Okay. Max worked a New Testament text. Tonight, I'm going to work an Old Testament text, Isaiah chapter 12. So, while you're turning over there, let me give you a little background on this passage. I want you to think about this question. I want you to imagine what it would be like to be a prophet. I mean, to be a prophet of God, someone to whom God spoke and revealed his will. And at times that will would involve a knowledge of the future so that you would know what the future was. Would, would that be cool to know the future? Pause. stand back over here. Does that sound cool to know the future? In Revelation chapter 10, the Holy Spirit described that as sort of a bittersweet experience when he's talking to John. And I think the reason for that is this. Sometimes the prophets of God got to bring happy information about the future. What they said about the future was good news, and if you got to share good news about you and your people, that would be a good thing, right? But you and I know that that's not always the way it was, right? Sometimes, sometimes what the prophet would tell the people was that because of their sin, God was going to bring judgment and terrible things were ahead for them. That's not such good news, right? So I think it would still kind of be cool to know what the future held, but at the same time, if it was bad news, it would be sort of bittersweet. I wanted you to think about that because the prophet we will study tonight would have understood that perfectly. Isaiah is one of the Old Testament prophets. He is the first of the major prophets, and, and at times his work involved both of those things. He was called by God to go and carry a message to his people. And so, and so he knew what God's will was for them. In fact, sometimes that message involved knowledge about the future. Except in his case, often the future for his people was not going to be good. There was trouble coming because of their sin. And it was the prophet's job to go and tell the people about that. But that was not all he was called to do. I imagine those of you who were in Max's class where y'all went through the book of Isaiah learned that he was the messianic prophet, which meant what? He prophesied about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. And so even though the book is overshadowed by these dark days and warnings about judgment that was to come, at the same time, 
There is in the book of Isaiah this bright light that's shining. And periodically the prophet goes back there and talks about the bright days that are coming when God will bring the seed of Abraham into the world. Jesus, who would deliver his people from their sins. And so you see the kind of bittersweet thing going on, right? In Isaiah chapter 11, as we get closer to the text we're going to work tonight, the prophet begins to say some things about this coming Savior. In chapter 11 in verse 1, he reminds us that he will be of the lineage of Jesse. That's King David's father. And in verse 16, he tells us that his kingdom is going to be a kingdom of peace. And then beginning in verse 11, he tells us how, how he's going to gather together the faithful remnant of God's people, Jew and Gentile, and make them into one. Great things were coming in the future for the people of God. And Isaiah had the privilege, well, hundreds of years in advance, to tell the people about their bright future. That leads us up to chapter 12, which is where we want to work tonight. In Isaiah chapter 12, he pauses. You notice it's a little bitty short chapter, right? The prophet pauses and he describes how people ought to react to this good news, how people ought to react to what God would do through Jesus and this salvation that would now be possible because of the sacrifice of David's great descendant. I remember reading those words for the very first time in chapter 12. It was in a morning devotion. Max and I were reading through this section. I don't remember which intern with us was at that, 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 that time. But I remember looking at that and thinking, that's talking about us too. We are part of that faithful remnant. And so although we read Isaiah and we think about him talking to the people of his day, and he was, as he looked together at the time of the Messiah, and he begins to talk about people reacting to what the Messiah would do. Understand, brothers and sisters, that's me and you. We are part of this faithful remnant being gathered by God under King Jesus. And so in verse or chapter 12, when it describes how God's people respond to this Savior, it's talking about how you and I ought to respond to him. And I think we need to consider that. I am fearful that sometimes when we have been a Christian for many, many, many years, which is probably true of a lot of folks sitting in a church building on a Sunday afternoon. You've been a Christian for many, many, many years. I am fearful that our salvation can become common to us. Something that gets mentioned in passing during the Lord's Supper talk or something that pops up in the songs that we sing, we stumble across things in the text periodically that remind us that through Jesus we've been saved, but we've heard that. We've heard it again and again and again. And I'm fearful that, that it loses it loses its wow power with us. It's no longer amazing to us anymore. It's the story we've heard again and again. And I am fearful sometimes we lose along the way our gratitude and our amazement and the right response to what God has done for us. And so, I'd like us to go back to Isaiah 12 tonight and join the faithful remnant that we're part of. And consider again how we should respond to God's great salvation and maybe to be provoked by the prophet's teaching here to celebrate 
that great salvation again. Will you do that with me tonight? We're going to begin in chapter 12 and verse number 1. Read there with me. The prophet says, Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Let's just pause right there. Do you see a changed relationship in those words? Notice that he begins by saying of God, you were angry with me. Do you see that in verse 1? I think some people would be uncomfortable with that. But listen, not if you've been reading Isaiah, because all the way up to chapter 12, he's been talking about the anger of God. In fact, drop back just a little bit to chapter 5. In chapter 5, in verse 25, it says, On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people, and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. I'm just guessing you're never going to see that sentiment applied to a refrigerator magnet and hopped on on somebody's fridge, right? Uh, we don't want to celebrate the anger of the Lord. In fact, some people would say, I don't understand how Scripture can, Scripture can make this angry God compatible with this idea rehearsed again and again and again that he's supposed to be a loving God. How can he love us and be mad at us? <laughs> there isn't a parent sitting in this crowd that doesn't understand that, right? When our children do bad things, does it hurt us? It does. And sometimes when those bad things damage and hurt their lives and wreak havoc and we're watching the train wreck, can it frustrate you? Does it make you mad sometimes? Does it mean we don't love them? I think we get angry because we do love them. And we see the mess that they're making. And if we can get that, we can understand exactly why God is sometimes angry with his people, doing terrible things to mess up their lives. How frustrating that must be for him. But verse 1 of chapter 12 is not really about the anger of God, is it? Although you were angry with me, the verse says, your anger is turned away. Do you see that? The relationship has changed. And listen, that is all about the coming of the Messiah. That's exactly what he's going to accomplish. He's going to take away the problem that separates us from our God. He's going to be the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And he's going to lead us back to the Father. And he's going to restore that relationship that sin destroyed. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that through Jesus we are reconciled to the Father. We can be his friend again. In fact, if you continue on in verse number 1, what he says, Your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Do you see the changed relationship? I bet there are a lot of people sitting in this crowd tonight that can talk about that experience personally. Do you remember when you heard the gospel? And whoever taught you, first took you through the process of convicting you of sin, was that painful or what? Learning that you were a sinner, sinner and destined to be on the receiving end of God's wrath, did you have a moment during your conversion process when that reality hit you like a ton of bricks and sent a shudder up your spine? Do you remember that? And suddenly God, was it God to be feared? Were you afraid? And then the study kept going. We're not going to stop there, are we, Wesley? 
Because we got good news to share. And that is what the prophet has been announcing. A Messiah came, a Savior that takes down the barrier so that we can be God's friend again. And as you learn the good news, it's like this huge relief come over you. Do you remember when you were baptized? Midnight on a Saturday night. I remember. Remember how you felt when you came out of the water? How at peace you were after that? God wasn't a source of fear anymore. He was a source of peace. That's what he's describing here for us. Well, back up. Do you see what he says at the beginning of verse 1? Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks. What's the proper response of God's people to this changed relationship? Gratitude. Overwhelming Gratitude. As we celebrate our salvation, we need to give thanks because God through Jesus has turned away his anger. Do you see that? And now that relationship is a source of comfort. Let's keep going because I'm going to run out of time. Look at verse number two. He continues, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. Now, do you see there that that verse is bookended with essentially the same statement? It begins with God is my salvation and then it ends with he has become my salvation. Do you see that? That's what we've just been talking about. God through Jesus was going to provide that salvation. But sandwiched in the middle, middle like the cream in an Oreo cookie, you see it? In the middle is the important thing. What we do, because what God has done, what do we do? He said, I will trust and I will not be afraid. There's another response to the great things that God has done through us through Jesus. We ought to trust him. And do you see why? Because he is our salvation. I tell you, brothers and sisters, we ought to trust God because he has already helped us deal with the greatest problem. The biggest issue me and you have in our life is the problem with sin. And God and Jesus has already given us a way to address the sin problem. Can we not then be confident that what other little things come up along the way, God's going to be there for us too? In the smaller things, he's already helped us with the big thing. And so, and so if I trust him, then what follows with that? He said, don't be afraid. <laughs> Do you think that our anxiety must surely exasperate God? Sometime. We are so fearful about so many little things along the way. We have a little hiccup with our health, and we're all stressed up about that. Or we begin to have some money problems, and we're all worried about making ends meet. And then there are the problem with the kids. Let's keep throwing them into this, right? And that worries and frets. And who hasn't been thinking about 2020 and the election and what's going to happen in America and politics? And we, and we fret and worry about all that stuff. All that little stuff. And someone in this crowd is thinking, I'm not sure all that is little stuff. Compared to sin, it's all little stuff. So what are we afraid of? Paul would say by the Holy Spirit, be anxious for nothing. Do you remember this in Philippians 4, 6? Be anxious for nothing. 
but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he adds in verse 7 that the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In this text, Isaiah 12, in verse 4, he urges us, call on his name. In Psalm 50, in verse 15, call upon me, God says, in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you. In fact, in this very verse, Isaiah adds, for the Lord is my strength. Do you see it? I suspect that when we look at our problems through the lens of our own limited human abilities, when I'm thinking about what I can accomplish by, by my strength and my wisdom, it isn't very much. There's a reason to be afraid. But when I am facing my troubles side by side with the one who said, let there be light and there was light, we'll just tuck in Sunday morning as well. As well. There is no challenge that's too great. And so we celebrate this great salvation that God has provided for us in Jesus because, because we can trust him. We can trust him to help us with everything. And that takes away the fear and the dread that people carry through life. But let's keep going. Look at verse number three. Because in verse number three, he will say, therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Now, that one takes a little more work, but it's an important concept. There's an important message here, and we need to see it. Rescue from sin, brothers and sisters, is not the only blessing that comes when we choose to serve the Lord. You see where we're going with that? I'm reminded of the words of, of, of Peter in Acts 3. In fact, Isaiah 12, 3 makes me think of Acts 3 in verse 19 when Peter tells the people on that occasion if they will turn to their Lord, the sins will be wiped away. You remember what else he says will come? Times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Do you see that? When we choose Jesus, what God wants to do is to unleash a river of blessing just to flood through our lives. Someone says, well, what is that all about? How long y'all want to stay tonight? That's another whole sermon to preach. Reuben, grab that down. There's a potential topic for you somewhere. All the blessings he wants us to enjoy. How about just the relief from guilt and regret over your past mistakes. It's gone. The blood of Jesus wiped it out. I can let go of all of that. How about a spiritual GPS bound up in that book you're holding tonight that will guide me and direct me and help me avoid the, the pitfalls that threaten to trip me up and, and mess up my life? How about a whole company of people like all of you sitting in this room tonight who rally around me and take each side, one arm and each side and, and walk along the way with me and help me so that I can continue to struggle all the the way to the end. God didn't leave it to me to do this by myself. He gave me all of you to help me. How about hope in the face of the grave? That death is not the end. That there is something more, a wonderful inheritance we're promised. Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter 1. I read the passage at every funeral because it is our inheritance as people who have chosen to follow Jesus. God wants this flood of blessing to run through our lives. But you notice that verse 3 is speaking to me and you. Do you see that? Look back at Isaiah 12. What's he telling us to do? In Isaiah 12, in verse 3, he says, Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs. 
Do you see that me and you have a part in this? If we want to enjoy that river of blessing, he says, you've got to draw from it. You've got to draw from the streams. I think there are some people that sit in church buildings that do that strictly so they can get a little fire insurance. They're scared to death of going to hell. And they feel some obligation to show up at church. But they don't do it because they get any joy out of this. They don't understand when you stand up here and talk about blessings because they've never really experienced that. They've never really drawn from the spring. They never studied their Bible. And so they don't know about that wisdom and benefit that comes from that. In fact, they keep stumbling around in the dark and making the same mistakes that everybody else is making all around them because they don't have the benefit of that guidance along the way. And then they live the life of a spiritual hermit. They just sort of pop in the church building at the last minute. And as soon as the last amen says, they're, they're gone and they don't develop relationships with other disciples. And so they have no idea what it's like to have other people cheering you on as you run the race and helping you get up when you stumble and fall. They have no benefit from those relationships. In fact, folks, what they're doing instead is they're drinking water from that cesspool they came out of. They're looking back to the old life and they're dabbling in that former life of sin that they were in before that brings with it all the consequence of that sin and all the, the guilt and regret because they know that's not, that that's not right. You start talking about a river of blessing, they don't even know what that is. Not because it isn't there. It's unavailable to them. Problem is, they're not drawing the water. Do you see that? And so, to celebrate our salvation, that's what we have to do. We have to listen to Isaiah. We've got to draw water from the springs. And then there's verse number four. Will you look there? Verse number four, he says, And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, he says in verse 5, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. The blessing of salvation was never intended to be this closely guarded secret that just a few people received and quietly held on to just for themselves. It's never been that way because in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, the Spirit inspired Paul to say that it is God's desire for all men to be saved. God doesn't want anyone to be lost. You think about the worst person that you know, and it is God's earnest desire to see them turn from their evil and embrace him and his way and serve him. And so, in Mark 16 and verse 15, he told all of us to go preach the gospel to every creature. He sent us out on this mission to tell people. And oddly enough, the prophet talked about that. A long time ago. He says in verse 5, let this be known throughout the earth. Make them remember that his name is exalted. In verse 4, he says, make known his deeds among the peoples. Here he is 
I am convinced an evangelistic spirit that ought to naturally well up in the hearts of people who get it, who know what it is to be lost, been there, and have experienced salvation in Jesus. It doesn't take very much motivation to get us to share good news, does it? So you hear about some pilot that lands a passenger plane on the river in New York City, and everybody lives, and the first thing you do is text somebody and you say, turn on the news, right? You've got to see this amazing story. And it doesn't even have to be that amazing because, because your kids call you up and say, well, about seven months, you're going to be a grandpa again. That didn't happen. I'm not announcing nothing, okay? But someone gives you some good news like that, what do you want to do? You want to tell everybody about it. In fact, it doesn't even have to be that dramatic. I think a good shoe sale at Walmart would prompt at least a few texts to someone, right? We like to share the good news and spread it around and let other people know about it. We have the best news. We have the best news. You don't have to die in your sin and be separated from God forever. You don't have to wallow around in that mess and live a miserable life right now. God, through Jesus, provided you with an answer, rescue from sin, and that river of blessing that he'll flow through your life when you make the decision to follow him. We have the best news to share, don't we? Which is why I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that sometimes we've lost that sense. I think that's why we don't talk about it anymore. It's no big deal to us anymore. Maybe the answer is to stop getting up here and fussing about the need to teach our neighbors and start emphasizing how awesome it is to be able to say through Jesus, I'm saved. I have hope beyond the grave. Brothers and sisters, that is good news that this world needs. God's people need to be shouted from those housetops. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came, this said this is what saved people are going to do. They're going to make known his deeds among the people. All right, let me wrap this up. Look back at verse 5 and let's finish this out. He says, praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I want to ask you a question tonight. How do you feel about being here? I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if there was some computerized way to get into all of our heads and register how we really feel about being here. I mean, when the clock hit like, like 3.30 or, or 4 o'clock and you realize, all right, if I'm going to go, I got to go now. I got to get ready. We got to get the kids ready. We got to get in the car. We got to head that way. What I want to know is when that came today, how did you feel about being here? Did 4 o'clock hit and you said to yourself, yes. I get to go praise my God tonight. We're going to open up his book. We're going to look at his word. 
I pray together with my brothers who are making this journey with me. Are the kinds of things we're doing, things that can stir up your soul, things that you look forward to, that you're anxious about being part of? Or are you here tonight because you felt like you had to be? I'm a Christian. Christians go to church. Good Christians go twice on Sunday. I'm glad all of y'all did tonight. We've been having great Sunday night crowds. But why are you here? Well, if I don't come, Wesley will call me, and I don't know what I'd tell him. Is that it? <laughs> Some of you have had that call. You know what I'm talking about, right? It seems to me here at the end of chapter 12 that the prophet is talking about what gives life to our worship. You've heard me say this before. I think worship ought to be a natural impulse for people who get it. They've been there. They've been in the pit. They know what it is to be a sinner. And they know what it is to discover the way out. And they can ponder the awful price that had to be paid so that we could have a way out. And they've thought about the amazing love behind all of that that drove God to do what he did so that we could be rescued. And what happens is as we get it, our heart just begins to well up with those feelings of appreciation and, and gratitude. And it starts wanting to find its way out in the form of, in the form of praise and thanksgiving and adoration and worship. And that's in Isaiah 12. Verse 4, give thanks. Verse 5, praise the Lord in song. Verse 6, cry aloud, shout with joy. Heartfelt, sincere, passionate worship should just naturally flow from people who get it, who understand, great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. It is never out of a sense of obligation. Yeah, I think we're obligated to be here, but that's sort of a childish motivation, isn't it? I'm here because I just have inside me all this thanksgiving and praise, and I need to let it out somewhere. And this is a chance to do that. Brothers and sisters, we serve a great God who in Jesus has done great things for us. We should honor him with passionate worship that flows from a sincere heart. He deserves nothing less from that, nothing less than that, does he? Okay, two takeaways and I'll be done. Number one. If you count yourself as part of the faithful remnant tonight, I am a Christian. My question is, does chapter 12 describe you? And if I have to look at myself and be honest and say, I'm not there, let's get there. And maybe the way that we do is by going back and thinking once more about how awesome it is that God, through Jesus, has worked out this plan so I can be delivered. Praise him for that. Maybe that's the place to start. But maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're not part of the faithful remnant. 
You're not one who has answered the call to join the crowd that's on the narrow way, headed toward life. Here's what I hope happened to you tonight. I hope that you felt completely left out all night long. As we've walked through these blessings and responses to what God has done, I hope you had this creeping sense in your soul. I am missing something, something wonderful, maybe the most important something, because you are missing the most important thing. And here's what we hope. Here's what we hope. Here's what, more importantly, God hopes. Tonight will be the night you choose him. And decide to join his faithful remnant. And to be part of the great celebration described in Isaiah 12. If you'll make that choice, you will cause all of us, but more importantly, you will cause heaven to celebrate tonight. God's waiting for you. Don't let him down. Make your way down for it right now while we stand, while we sing.